hey, everybody's kind of sinnerish. This is cool. Well, I can, can kind of preach to everybody. If you've got a Bible tonight, open it to the book of Acts. As you know, we've been going through the book of Acts for the past few months. We find ourselves in Acts chapter 6. Now, what we're about to read, some, I mean, for a long time, this section of scripture, particularly in Acts chapter 7, uh, was something that was uh, difficult for me to really get a grip on what, what exactly the point was. And uh, I mean, let me just ask you, how many of you, um, how many of you have read Acts chapter 7? Okay, now here's another question. How many of you remember what Acts chapter 7 is? Okay, all right. For those of you that remember what Acts chapter 7 is, how many of you say, I fully understood it? Okay, all right. Well, I'll tell you why I say that, because Acts chapter 7 is Stephen's defense as he's put on trial in front of the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish high court. And he's put on trial, and he preaches this long sermon. And for the longest time, I just thought he was rambling. Because he gets up there and he starts talking about Moses and Joseph and Abraham. And he kind of gives them a, I mean, they're telling him, you know, defend yourself. You've been accused, now defend yourself. And he starts with Abraham and he goes to, to, he goes to Moses, or he goes to Joseph, then he goes to Moses. And he kind of like just tells the whole history of the Old Testament and goes into the New. And I've always wondered, like, you know, why are you telling all these things? What, what does that have to do with you being on trial? So you dig in, you pray, you research, and you, all of a sudden, I remember when it clicked, oh, that's what he's talking about. That's why he's saying all those things. And I hope tonight that God will give us clarity as we read it, that there was, this is not just a man rambling on trial. This is a man with a mission from God. And in fact, Stephen, who we're about to read, you might not really be familiar with Stephen. You might know that he was the first martyr. But Stephen was probably one of the most influential, even though he's only in part of the book of Acts, and even though he dies early, he was one of the most influential men in the history of the New Testament. As we read the, about the, the advance of the early church, Stephen is a pivot. And I'll tell you why. Because Stephen not only preached the gospel with power, but Stephen was the one, he was the first martyr, the first one to die for his faith, for Christianity. I mean, after Jesus, of course, but the scripture calls him the first martyr. He was the one that set a fire in uh, Saul of Tarsus, who later became the apostle Paul. Now, that fire wasn't a good thing in Saul at first. Saul kicked against it. Saul fought against it. But it was Stephen's message that sparked something in Paul. It was Stephen's message and Stephen's death that, that got the church out of Jerusalem, even though it wasn't a good thing that they were being persecuted. It was his message that finally sparked the, the, uh, the, the backlash and the movement so that the church spread out all throughout the world. So Stephen is an influential part of the scripture. He's a very important part of the church. And we're going to start kind of where we left off in Acts chapter 6. I'd like you to turn there. And uh, as we go all the way through Acts chapter 7, I want you to know, I don't want to keep you here all night by any means. Um, so we're going to, there's some things that normally we would take a little bit more time on, and we're just going to read through them. Uh, because I, I, I prayed about it, I looked at this, I said, is there any way I can chop Acts chapter 7 up? And I just didn't feel it would be right, because this is one sermon that he preaches, and it kind of only makes sense when you read it together. So we're going to do a lot of reading, but that's okay. I believe that you're going to, 
you're going to be engaged. God's going to speak to us through it. So don't worry if you don't like reading. You'll be all right. You'll, you'll, you'll survive this, you know. Um, just if you don't like reading, close your eyes and listen or something, you know. <laughs> Acts chapter 6, verse 7. So uh, just, a, just as backup for those of you that weren't here last week, we left off with the church picking seven people to make sure that everybody was being taken care of fairly because there were native Hebrew Jews and there were Hellenistic Jews, Jews who uh, spoke Greek, Jews from other parts of the, the empire. Um, and as they were feeding and taking care of the widows in the church, uh, the apostles were, were, were in charge of that. The Bible says that people would bring their offerings and lay it at the apostles' feet and the apostles would distribute it. The apostles... Uh, got some complaints because the, the Hellenistic Jews, the Greek Jews, their widows weren't being fed. They were being overlooked in some areas. And the apostles said, listen, it's, we, we can't spend all our time trying to make sure everybody gets fed fairly. We need to devote ourselves to the word and to prayer. So pick seven people full of the spirit and full of wisdom who will do this task. And they picked seven people. Among those seven are names that you'll recognize like Stephen Names like Philip, these are, these are some of the folks that are picked to make sure people get fed fairly. But of course, their job seems like a very basic, very business-like job, like we talked about last week. Just because their official title was taking care of widows does not mean they stopped being preachers of the gospel. Some people think that it was just the apostles that were supposed to spread the good news, just the apostles that were supposed to do miracles, just the apostles that were supposed to preach the gospel, but that's just not true. Here we find a group of seven guys who are officially in the church. Their title is make sure people get fed fairly, make sure stuff gets distributed right. But in, as they do that, they don't neglect that. They're also powerfully ministering the word of God. They're doing what every believer should do, which is spread the gospel. And so in Acts chapter 6, it says in verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. This is awesome because if you'll remember when Jesus was walking the earth and as he was teaching and preaching in the villages, it says that many rulers of the synagogue believed in him but were too afraid of their own people. They're too afraid that if they, they confessed Jesus publicly, they'd get thrown out of the synagogue. They'd lose their job. But now the gospel's being preached with power, and it's not just the regular Joes that are getting saved. It's the priests that are coming to the faith. This is a big deal. Yeah. Now, when God starts to move and lives start to change and people radically turn to Jesus, there's always going to be a backlash. If there's no backlash in the culture, we're probably doing very little to affect the culture. When the Lord moves and we start to see change and we start to see a, a, a mighty move of God, there will be a backlash to that because you're moving something, you're shifting something. And of course the enemy doesn't like to see his territory dwindling or getting smaller. Of course he doesn't like to see that. So there's always a pushback. You can imagine in their culture, if priests start believing in Jesus, what do you think they start doing? They start teaching it in their synagogues. They start going back and telling the people the Messiah is here. 
Now, if you're the, a, a ruler of other synagogues, if you're the high priest, if you're part of the Sanhedrin, and you've already rejected Jesus, you don't want anything to do with him. In fact, you've stirred up the crowd to crucify him. You're not going to be happy that some of your priests have started to turn to Jesus. So there's going to be a backlash here. But here's what happens. In verse 8, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. This guy, whose official title was make sure people get fed, did not neglect the fact that he was still a minister of the gospel. I'm just going to take a bracket moment here, just a side moment to tell you, just because you don't have an official title of evangelist, just because you don't have an official job that puts a microphone in your hand does not mean that you can't be a minister of the gospel. So many people are waiting for somebody to give them a title before they do what the Lord put in their heart to do. Now, in the scripture, it's important. There's, uh, you don't just put yourself in a position of authority over other people. The scripture tells us clearly that, that you know, that's something that, that somebody lays their hands on you. That's something that, that you're, you're appointed to do by the will of God. And, and that's not just something you don't just all of a sudden rise up and say, I'm going to boss you around. That's not what happens. But every member in the body is a minister of reconciliation. You may never have been put, uh, microphone's never been put in your hand. You've never been given a platform. You might never have give, been given an official title in any sort of ministry capacity. But that doesn't mean you can't preach the gospel and see signs and wonders follow you wherever you go. You are a minister of reconciliation. And the word is the word and the spirit is the spirit, right? So here's what's happening. This guy is preaching. Wonders, miracles are taking place. But some of the men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. Now, Stephen is one of those Hellenistic Jews, we believe at least. So he is uh, probably Greek-speaking. Most likely, these synagogues uh, are Greek-speaking as well. So these might be the ones he's focusing on. This is his niche. This is his, his, his area. And they start arguing with him, and they're very frustrated with him. And it says, but they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Isn't that awesome? Then they secretly induced men to say, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they, they convinced some people to lie about him. They convinced some people to tell, uh, to bear false witness, to, to perjure themselves. It says, and they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place in the law. For we've heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. Now there's a grain of truth in that, isn't there? Because Jesus did say, I will tear down this temple in three days I'll build it up. Now, first of all, he's not making, we, we know now he was making reference to his own body. On the third day, he rose. The temple was destroyed, but on the third day, he rose. But he also did say that that temple, not one stone would, would remain on top of the other. That would be a day it would all be torn down. That came true in A.D. 70. That, ex that exact thing happened. As the Romans came to squash a Jewish rebellion, uh, the first, first Roman general sent to squash it was a man named Vespasian. Vespasian, uh, after Nero was killed, and there was a couple other 
short-lived emperors that came after that. Vespasian was brought back to Rome and was made emperor. His son Titus led, led the Romans in the counter-rebellion. And when they captured Jerusalem, Titus, uh, according to Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at the time, Titus told them, hey guys, don't, don't touch the temple. This is sacred to them. Don't, don't mess with it. But as they set fire to some of the things in Jerusalem to teach them a lesson, it's the history that we hear tells us that the uh, Roman soldiers saw that the fire, as the fire began to go and, and the temple itself caught fire, the Roman soldiers saw gold in between the stones because this was, there was gold uh, throughout the temple. And they saw this gold begin to melt and they, of course, they get a glint of gold and the generals couldn't control them or didn't want to control them. So they began to take one stone off another to get at that gold and the temple was torn down, completely destroyed. So what Jesus said actually did happen. But what they're accusing Stephen of is a grain of truth and a lot of slander. You know, every bit of slander's got a grain of truth to it. You know, pick, pick your favorite preacher to go listen to, or, you know, your favorite author or whatever. And you're going to find a website that will take a little bit of what they say and, and call them a heretic or a cult or whatever. I, mean, I'm, I'm, I don't care what your background is, whether you're, we're talking uh, about a very, very, how could anybody have a problem with this guy to somebody who go, well, I could see how somebody could have a problem. It doesn't matter. Across the spectrum, there's a malcontent out there that twists their words, right? So they take a little bit of what Stephen says and they twist it. And they make it so that he's blasphemed Moses and he's blasphemed the temple, and he's blasphemed uh, Jerusalem, and, and so he's in trouble here. And as he's brought before the council, something happens, and let's just read what happens here. It says, fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Now, you'd think that would be their cue to say, okay, let's, let's leave this guy alone. But they didn't. Already God was with them. Do you remember what Jesus said? Jesus told his disciples, they're going to drag you before their courts. He said, don't worry. This will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So many times when someone comes at us accusing us or, or not liking us, we think it's the, it's the worst thing in the world. But he's saying, look, if they put you on trial, that's a platform. They're going to make, they're going to let you speak. You defend yourself. And he says, I want you to make up your mind. Jesus said, make up your mind not to prepare your defense. For in that hour, I'll give you the words to say. As Stephen steps up, as good as he is at, at preaching the gospel, at maybe arguing some points, as good as he is in that moment, the Holy Spirit's with him. Jesus is with him. So much so, there's so much of the presence of God that his face is shining. Can you imagine that? His face is glowing. He's so surrounded. I, I, I imagine in those moments when people are foaming at the mouth and they're angry and you know they want to kill you, your first instinct is to worry, is to be afraid, is to run away. Maybe even to back off a little bit, right? You say, well, maybe I was a little bit hasty in saying some things. Let me, let me back off that because you want to save your life. But instead, as Stephen stands up there, God is with him. Jesus stands with him. His face is even glowing because there's such a presence of God with that man. And as this happens in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said, are these things so? That's a yes or no question, isn't it? 
Stephen turns a yes or no question into like a full chapter, a, a full sermon. <laughs> he said, hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Now, I want to I set some, some foundations for you because like I said, when the first hundred times I read this, <laughs> When I was younger, I would read this and go, he's just rambling. Like he's talking about stuff that I I don't get why he's talking about this. But what did they accuse him of? They accused him of blasphemy. They accused him of blaspheming the temple. They accused him of blaspheming Moses. So what he's about to do is he's about to say some things that are going to turn their accusations on their head. Because one of the things they've accused him of is... uh, is saying the temple will be torn down. He's about to, in his defense, show them that God was not just confined to this temple. He's about to, if you'll you'll notice a pattern, you'll notice two patterns in in his testimony that he's about to tell. Two things are going to stand out to you. Number one, when God spoke to people, they were always rejected. The prophets, the leaders, they were always rejected by people. Moses was rejected You know, Joseph was rejected. What he's going to show you is that every time God uses somebody, there's a backlash. And he's telling them that because he's trying to demonstrate to them now that the Lord is declaring that the Messiah has come. Salvation has come to Israel. You should be excited about it. But but you're opposing it. You rejected it. And that's nothing new because that's been happening. Every time God does something, there's a huge backlash from people that don't want it to happen. And it's not backlash from the world. It was backlash from the religious leaders. He's going to show them that the leaders in Israel were the ones that rejected the prophets. Then the second thing he's going to show them is this, that God's presence has never been confined to a building. See, he's accused of blaspheming the holy place. He's about to demonstrate, number one, I'm not blaspheming the the holy place. He wasn't blaspheming the temple, but he's going to demonstrate to them that God continually showed up in places you might not expect him to show up. Because he starts his speech with telling you, God appeared to Abraham in Mesopotamia. That was not the promised land. That wasn't where, uh, that wasn't any holy place, but God appeared to Abraham there. Says when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Stephen's about to show them that yes, there is a land that God has appointed. Yes, there was a temple and a tabernacle that God told them to build, but God was the author of that. And if God's the author of it, he's not just contained to it. So if God's the one that says, I want you to build me a temple, if God's the one that says, I want you to build me a tabernacle, then don't think that God will forever be restricted to that. If God told you to build it, God can choose to appear wherever he wants. And so he says, God told Abram to go to this land, to leave his country. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and he settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground. And yet, even when he had no child, he promised that he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke to this effect, that his descendants would be aliens in a foreign land and that they would be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. And whatever nation to which they would be in bondage, I myself will judge, said God. And after that, they will come out and serve me in this place. 
and he gave them the covenant of circumcision. So Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. The patriarchs became jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt, yet God was with them. You see what he's saying? God was with Abraham even when he was in Mesopotamia. God brought him to a land. The land is important, but God's not restricted to that land. Then he says, God spoke to Joseph. He was rejected, just like you're rejecting me. And then he says, but even when he was in Egypt, God went with him. Even when he was in Egypt, God went with him. Then it says this, and he rescued them from all his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all of his household. Now a famine came over all Egypt and Canaan, and great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Joseph heard, Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. On the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down to Egypt, and there he and our fathers died. From there they were removed to Shechem and laid in a tomb which Abraham had purchased for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar and Shechem. But at the time of the promise was approaching, which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and they multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. So he's telling them their history, isn't he? But he's painting a picture. He's painting a picture that the same God back then is the God now. The same God back then was not afraid to appear in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, in all of these places. God's not restricted to your temple. And there will always be people like Joseph's brothers that reject the one that God picks, the one that God's chosen, the word of God. And yet God will always provide. God will always make a way. So here he goes, and he continues the thought. Says it was he, this Pharaoh, who took shrewd advantage of our race. He mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses was born. He was lovely in the sight of God. He was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he'd been set aside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He was a man of power in word and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. We saw one of them being treated unjustly. He defended him. He took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he, was supposed, he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. Does that sound familiar to you? Stephen's preaching deliverance. This Jesus whom you crucified, he came to set you free. He came to deliver you. He came to give you life, and he's being rejected, just like Moses, who brought that message of deliverance, was rejected by his own people. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together. He tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, your brethren, why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? You don't mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled. He became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning thorn bush. When Moses moved away to Midian, God didn't stay away from Moses. 
Even in that place, God appeared to him. Wherever Moses was, God was with him. You can't confine God to one space. Moses saw it. He marveled at the sight. As he approached to look more closely, they came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. I've certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I've heard their groans, and I've come down to rescue them. Come now, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they disowned, there's the pattern again. They disowned him, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is important because the Jews held on to that fact that Moses said, God will raise up a prophet like me. There were two figures in their history that they expected to be part and testaments and confirmation of the Messiah. That was Moses and Elijah. They believed that God would raise up one like Moses and they believed that Elijah would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. So it's no coincidence that on the Mount of Transfiguration, the two figures that were standing talking to Jesus and confirming who he was were Moses and Elijah. He's showing them, guys, you rejecting God's prophets is nothing new. You've been doing this for a long time. We've been doing this for a long time. Jesus said, your fathers, you say you're sons of Abraham, but if Abraham were here right now, if Moses were here right now, you'd reject them. If you were sons of Abraham, you'd listen to me. He said, no, you're the guys that kill the prophets. This is what we do. We kill the prophets, they kill the prophets, and they wait a few hundred years, and then they love the prophets. Once they're dead, we love them. Our culture's kind of the same way, hey? There's people we just absolutely hate. When they're dead for a few years, oh, they're amazing. Ooh, just, just wonderful. People that got burned at the stake are saints now, right? Of course, we know we're all saints by the blood of Jesus, but they're venerated, they're, they're exalted, they get books written about them. It's been that way for a long time. Stephen is trying to wake them up. In fact, it's not Stephen trying to wake them up, it's the voice of God giving them another chance. Wake up. This is nothing new. This is the pattern. Break out of the pattern. When God sends a deliverer, you always reject him. So break the pattern and realize that God prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years ago that he would raise up a man, and that man was Jesus Christ, and it's time for you to receive him or reject him, but it'd be better for you if you'd receive him. He pulls no punches here. Can you imagine? Once again, you guys know how long I've been reading here. I've been trying to keep you involved, but this was a yes or no question. He's just going. Can you imagine these guys? They've been trained. They know these stories frontward and backwards. I'm sure they're feeling proud and arrogant and saying, who are you to tell us our history? We know our history. Yes. Punk kid, we know this. But he keeps talking. <laughs> this is the one in verse 38 
who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Our fathers, just like you, our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him. They repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. At that time, they made a calf and they brought a sacrifice to the idol and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away. Now notice, what are they rejoicing in? The works of their hands. What's the temple? It's what they built. In fact, Herod's temple wasn't even built according to God's pattern. God used that temple. Jesus preached in that temple. Jesus threw out the money changers and said that this temple was his house. And his house should become a house of prayer. So God didn't reject the temple of Herod. But they're elevating the temple above the the God who the temple is supposed to be for. They're accusing Stephen because he's preaching the gospel of not properly respecting the temple, not respecting the building. And he says, listen, guys, you've been doing this. You see what our forefathers did? They rejected God's servant, and they rejoiced in the works of their hands. If they could see it, it was more important than what they couldn't see. That's why the Israelites built the golden calf. You see, God, I mean, Jehovah, Yahweh, he was with them the whole time. They saw his works, they saw his miracles, but you know, they couldn't see him. Sure, they saw the pillar of smoke and the cloud of smoke, the pillar of fire, they saw that, but they didn't actually see him. And so they wanted to build something they could see, something they could control, something they knew what it was, so they built a calf, a calf. Leah, have you ever been tempted to worship a calf? No, there's never been a thought like, wow, what a majestic creature. All right. Save me. Save me, 517. Save me. (laughs) See, a lot of them don't even get names. Save me from 517. That's right. Inside joke. So anyways, you know the story. Moses comes down. He's furious. He's been with the living God. He's received a word from the Lord. And they're worshiping some stupid calf. And they're dumb enough. Aaron, the high priest, the supposed spiritual leader, is dumb enough to say, we threw our gold into the fire and it jumped out like that. (laughs) Then Moses is going to be like, oh, okay, well, no no harm, no foul then. All right, cool. If it jumped out that way. (laughs) This is like something your two-year-old would come up with. This is not a grown man excuse. These are your toddlers that you go, okay, you don't think I'm that stupid, do you? (laughs) Anyways, back to the story. So they rejoiced in the works of their hands, but God turned away and delivered them up to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of the god Rompha, The images which you made to worship, I will remove you beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern which he'd seen. 
Having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it with Joseph upon dispossessing the nations, sorry, Joshua, upon dispossessing the nations whom God drove out before our fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight, and he asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Now, so he's, he's told them the history of the temple from the tabernacle to Solomon's temple. And then he says this with these words. See, he's saying, I know the history, guys. You treat me like I don't know what I'm talking about. I know the history. It was God that ordained it. But the next verse he says, but God, the most high, does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Them's fighting words. Because they've based their whole worldview on a God they could fully get and fully understand and in some degrees control. This is what religion does. Religion moves us away from an encounter with the living God. I'm not talking about pure religion. The scripture says pure religion is good. There's a pure religion that's of God, which is taking care of the orphans and the widows and keeping yourself unstained by the world. That's in the book of James. But there's a a man-made religion, and what it always seeks to do is to contain God. That's what mankind always tries to do, is to contain God. Because number one, if you can contain God, then you can say, I fully understand God. You can control other people, because you're the one who controls access to God. You're the one that gets him. You can control all these little peons down here, because you're the one that's elevated. You get them. You understand. You're the one that says, if you want to go to God, you got to go through me. And Jesus said to them, you Pharisees, you stand at the gate of the kingdom. And you stand and you don't even go in. And then you don't let anybody else go in. That's what man-made religion does. It stands at the gates of the kingdom of God. And it doesn't enter the kingdom. And it won't let other people enter. And that's why it's so dangerous. That's why Jesus was so harsh towards those leaders. You see, I mean, there were sinners all over the place that Jesus preached to and ministered to, right? But the reason he was so harsh to the leaders was because the leaders weren't just keeping themselves out of the kingdom. They were keeping other people out of the kingdom. And Jesus said, it'd be better for you, instead of causing these little ones to stumble, it'd be better for you to tie a millstone around your neck and throw yourself in the ocean. That would be better for you than doing what you're doing. You are keeping people out of the kingdom. So God sent Stephen to preach this message, to wake them up. But I'm going to tell you that every time the Spirit of God speaks in the power of God, it will always cause a response. People can't stay neutral when God speaks. You can stay neutral if I were to get up here, somebody to get up here, and we give you a nice little talk that makes everybody feel good. We can stay neutral. We don't have to move. But when God speaks... You are either drawn to him, you either you are repentant or you're, you're moving closer to him, or you are repelled by it, you reject him, and your heart becomes further hardened, but you never stay the same. You should never stay the same when you hear the word of God. You're either going to go up or you're going to go backwards, but you can't stay, the, once you hear, you can't stay the same. I've said this before, but you notice throughout the Bible, he doesn't accuse the Assyrians of having hard hearts. He doesn't accuse the Babylonians of having hard hearts. Not even the Egyptians. Pharaoh had a hardened heart only after Moses spoke the word of the Lord to him. Then his heart was hardened. 
You see, you can only be hardened once you've heard. The book of Hebrews says it three times. Today, if you, and it's quoting from the Old Testament. Today, if you hear his voice. And then it says, today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. When you hear the voice of God, your choice is to receive it and to respond to it. Or to reject it and become hardened. Now, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached his message. And it says that they were pierced to the heart. These, these men and women were pierced to the heart. And they said, brethren, what must we do to be saved? What, what do we have to do now? And Peter told them exactly what to do. They were pierced to the heart. The word of God hit them right in the heart. What we're going to see here is that the same thing's going to happen to these men because God is using Stephen to speak to them. You know, God loves us enough to at times raise his voice when we're not listening. God loved them enough to have Stephen come and give him a chance to repent. What'd they do with that chance? Not, nothing good. Here's what happens. He's almost done. He says, verse 51, he's about to get real friendly with him. He says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Uh-oh. He just uh, insulted their Jewishness. You know, he just called them out. I mean, that one thing, we've been circumcised since birth. We've been following the law since we were old enough to read. You know, all of a sudden he says, you know what? You may have the physical signs of circumcision, but your heart is uncircumcised. (laughs) Stiff-necked. And you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. There's a pattern here, and you're following it. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Name one. All of them. (laughs) They love Jeremiah. Oh, they love Jeremiah. They threw Jeremiah in a pit. Golly, they love Elijah. They tried to kill Elijah. So much so that he was ready to die himself because he was so persecuted. These guys are just swell, aren't they? Oh, Moses. Moses is their hero. They got Moses. If they could get tattoos, if they were allowed to get tattoos in the the old covenant religion, they would have got a tattoo of Moses on both biceps. (laughs) And right on their heart. Moses was their superhero. Moses was the man. We are, if anybody, we love anybody, it's Moses. Because Moses gave us some laws and we love the laws. Stephen just told them, you rejected Moses. You weren't nice to Moses. It wasn't us. It was our fathers. You're doing the exact same thing now that they did. He says, you're stiff-necked. You're uncircumcised in heart. You're always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who have received the law as ordained by angels, and yet you did not keep it. Oh, that's another slap in the face. If they thought they did anything, it was keep the law. He said, you didn't keep the law. This is an important point because they kept the letter of the law. They didn't keep the spirit of the law. They might have followed some regulations and rules, but they did not keep the heart of God. 
Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. Time to repent, you're cut to the quick. It hits you right in the heart. It pierced you to the heart. You're cut to the quick. That means cut to the center of who you are. His words cut past their defenses. It cut past their education. It cut past their arrogance and hit them right in the center. This is time for you to fall on your knees and say, what must we do to be saved? But instead, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. These are educated rulers of the synagogue. Educated men. Dignified men. They are so ticked off that they begin gnashing their teeth. Luke wrote this down. Of course, every scripture is God-breathed. Isn't that right? But Luke, the historian, was the one that recorded this. He wasn't there at the time. But he received his information from eyewitnesses. He said, I went to eyewitnesses and I found out what happened. Most of Paul's ministry, Luke was with him and he saw it firsthand. But for these things, he had to, he had to ask eyewitnesses. One of those eyewitnesses was Paul himself. And the eyewitnesses must have told him, you could hear people's teeth gnashing. That's how mad they were. It's not just a figure of speech. That's how ticked off they were. Don't think you can preach the gospel and have nobody get mad at you. <laughs> You're living in a fantasy land. You know, I talk to so many young people who God's put a vision in their heart to go and minister the gospel. And a lot of them have a dream. Thousands of people coming to the Lord. It always starts with the thousands of people. And, maybe, and that's probably because God, God's dreams are big, aren't they? Yeah. What they forget are the large numbers of people. The more people you have that are hearing your message, the more people you're going to have that don't like you. That's part of the process. Because you think all these thousands of people just think you're the greatest thing in the world. The truth is, if you're going up and, and testifying the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are going to be people that, that, that love it, that embrace it. But the Bible says the stone that the builders rejected has become the, the cornerstone. It says that, that though, there are those out there that receive it as the cornerstone, that receive Jesus as their cornerstone. And there are many who will trip over him and stumble over him and be very angry. So our, our job is to present Jesus. Let him trip over Jesus. Don't let him trip over me. I don't want to be the stumbling block. If there's something about me that's causing them to stumble, I haven't let them get to Jesus. But if I preach Jesus, there are going to be people that stumble at Jesus. Now, let's just think about it. This is the early days of the church. So these religious leaders are claiming to be followers of Moses. Followers of Abraham, sons of Abraham, in the same line as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. King David is, is revered. And yet, these men were all rejected by their countrymen. The prophets were all rejected. Do you know there are even those of us at times who are Christians or call ourselves Christians that would claim that we follow Jesus and we would follow him to the ends of the world and yet the words of Jesus, the word of God, the true, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God that's in his word is at times a little too hard for us to embrace and we either say, God, I recognize I have not arrived yet. I'm learning something. If I've been wrong, I'll change. Or we get arrogant and we reject it. We say, I don't want to hear that. Do you know how hard it is for a preacher to receive revelation, new revelation from God and change what they've been preaching? It's very difficult, especially now. Everything's recorded. So if all of a sudden you wake up, you open your Bible and go, oh, I've been preaching this wrong for years. 
It takes humility to get up and go, guys, I was wrong. And a lot of people would rather keep on preaching the wrong thing than admit they were wrong. Because you save face. These men would rather reject the word of God than receive it. And here's what happens. They get so angry, they begin gnashing their teeth. Gnashing their teeth, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. Wow. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We are witnessing the last moments of Stephen's life. I'm sure he didn't think he was going to die this young. But boy, if you're going to go out, what a way to go out. See, what he does is he's been looking at their faces. Their faces are angry. Their faces are cruel. And all of a sudden, he turns his gaze. Something else catches his attention. Instead of looking at their faces as they gnash their teeth, he looks upward and he sees the glory of God. He sees the heavens open up. He sees Jesus. What a wonderful moment that must have been. If there was any fear of death left in him, I'm sure it was gone then. He knew how this was going to go down, but he wasn't afraid. See, he was looking forward to seeing Jesus. And he knew at this point, I'm sure he probably had a very strong feeling at this point, I'm going to get to see him real quick. It says this, that he doesn't just keep that information to himself. <laughs> he says, behold, in other words, look. Maybe he thinks that other people will see it. You guys see what I see? He says, behold, I see the heavens opened up. I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they covered their ears. You see, before this, they had spiritually closed ears. Now they're so angry, they're covering their ears and yelling so that they don't have to listen to him. They still kind of sound like toddlers, don't they? I don't hear you. This is, I mean, guys, rejecting Jesus, that, that hardness of heart, it creates absolute stupidity. It just does. And this is what happens. They cry out with a loud voice, they cover their ears, and they rushed at him with one impulse. But when they had driven him out of the city... They began stoning him, and the witnesses laid their, aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Bum, bum, bum. This is an important point. Now, just before we go any further, this is illegal. The Romans were supposed to sign off on any death penalty stuff, but the Romans kind of knew there were times where they'd kind of look the other way because they didn't want a rebellion on their hands. These guys were so angry, they didn't go through the proper channels. Even with Jesus, they tried to go through the proper channels. They strong-armed Pilate, and they made him show up at Roman court. They're so mad at Stephen, they don't even make him show up. They don't even involve the Romans. They just push him out of the city. Because God is working on them. The Holy Spirit's poking them. They don't like to be poked. None of us really like to be poked, do we? You know, the most wonderful thing is when you sit in a service and the Holy Spirit prods you and you go, oh, yes, Lord, and you respond to it and he does what you could never do and that revelation changes you and it's the most wonderful thing in the world. It's the opposite feeling when you reject it. When you reject the Holy Spirit prodding you, when the word of God is preached and you stiffen up and you go, I don't want to hear it, it's the worst feeling. 
causes you to be angry. Some of you, I, I know some of you in the, in the room tonight, and you tell stories of how when you first came to church, that's the way you felt. Some of you were just so happy and thrilled, and you know, you're like, man, I can't wait for him to give me an opportunity to want to receive Jesus. And others of you, were, others were, were ticked off. This is all a result of the Holy Spirit prodding. They laid their robes at a, the feet of a young man named Saul. And we know, and we're going to read this much later, but later in the book of Acts, when Saul tells his story about Jesus knocking him down off his feet or his horse or whatever he was on, knocking him down on the road, he says that one of the things Jesus said to him, because Saul, after, right after this moment, like right after this day, Saul began persecuting the Christians. This was the thing that sparked it. And you got to ask yourself, what made him start persecuting the church? What made him go house to house, dragging families, splitting families up, putting people to death? What gave him that motivation to do all of this? He tells us much later on in his life, he says that Jesus told him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. If you don't know what goads are, goads are things that you prod to get an animal to move. Sometimes the bigger, the thicker the skin the animal, the harder it is for them to move. You prod that animal, you get them to move. So from this moment that Stephen preached, Saul was one of those men that was cut to the quick. And there was the goad of the Holy Spirit that was saying, you're not going to be able to forget this, Paul. Saul. Saul. You're going to serve me. Saul, I've got a plan for you. Saul, you better listen. This is the gospel. And instead of going, oh, yes, Lord, I'm going to join Stephen. Instead, Saul was angry and he was ticked off and he began to kick against the prodding of the Holy Spirit. How did he kick? By persecuting the church. Now, what kind of sermon? What kind of message? What kind of testimony produces that reaction in that man? It's a testimony fully filled with the Holy Spirit and the power of God that you just can't shake loose of. And I want every one of us to get used to and embrace the fact that in those moments where you're put to the test, in those moments where somebody's got to hear what you have to say, even if they don't like you, that in those moments God can speak through you and the Holy Spirit can use you and you realize it's not about me. It's not about whether they like me or not. It's not about how good I am at convincing them of something. It's about whether or not I'm willing to be used as a vessel for God to speak through. Because if I am, I've got to accept the fact that some people will repent right away. Some people will feel the love of God right away and some people will reject it and be very very angry but as long as I preach the gospel and I said what the Lord said to say and I'm being led by the Holy Spirit then it's not my business whether they accept it or not because Jesus didn't, didn't say the gospel the, the, the epistles they don't say that you're going to be judged by how many people came to Jesus through your life it says you'll be asked what you did with what he sent you to do how were you obedient to his voice were you faithful do you realize when we get to heaven, there's not a chart of how many people got saved through your ministry? I, I don't think, at least. I don't know. I've never been. But I don't think you'll be judged on how many people got saved. I think we're held to account for whether we said what the Lord told us to say, whether we went where he told us to go, did we do what he told us to do. Because there might be somebody sent to a place that's easy. Thousands of people come. 
And there might be somebody that was sent to a stiff-necked people. And God is, thank, is, is rewarding their faithfulness because even though many people rejected them, they did what they were supposed to do. What a message. Aren't we glad Stephen preached this message? If Stephen didn't preach this message, would there have been the Apostle Paul? Well, that question, we know that Jesus said, I, I called you a long time ago, Paul. I knew you for a long time. So this message had to be preached. Whether it was Stephen or somebody else, it had to be preached. Saul had to hear this. And Stephen gave his life for this purpose. That's why, let's just read the rest of it. They went on stoning Stephen as he, as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then following on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. What love. Well, he just followed in the steps of Jesus, didn't he? Don't hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. You notice in the New Testament, it doesn't ever say they die. Because death no longer has a hold on us. We fall asleep because sleep is temporary. This body will be resurrected. And we will get a new one. Praise God. Stephen fell asleep. It says Saul was in hearty agreement, chapter 8. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a, on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem as they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them into prison. This is where we leave off. And we'll, 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 we'll end here. But uh, this message sparked a great persecution. But it also sparked the greatest move and, and, and spreading of the gospel in the history of the church. And it also planted a seed in the man that would later become one of the greatest apostles and would write the most letters in our New Testament, which was Paul, that God used to preach the gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles alike, that God used to show great revelation about the grace of God and about the, the new covenant. What a wonderful thing that is. I'm glad Stephen preached this message. We call him the first martyr. Martyr comes from the Greek word for witness. You know how some people might say, hey, quit being such a martyr. You know when you're really whiny? You're really whiny and you're acting like you're just persecuted and you know, oh, everybody, you know, everybody hates me. And, but you know what? I just stand up for what's right. And you know, everybody's like, quit being such a martyr. They call it a martyr's complex when you're feeling sorry for yourself. You know none of the martyrs had a martyr's complex? That's why they were martyrs. You know, it called, the people they call martyrs in the New Testament were the ones that died. But they died and their deaths and the words that they said as they went to their death was a witness that said more in some cases than even their life said. That as they laid down their life with boldness, with compassion, with love, with truth, as they laid down their life for something bigger than themselves, it witnessed to those who saw it. There were many who came to the Lord because they saw how these believers went and without fear and without any hesitation, they went boldly to see their Savior. And they weren't afraid to be beaten, imprisoned, or even die for what Jesus told them to preach and what Jesus had done for them. Stephen 
was one of the greatest witnesses because he wasn't afraid to just say what the Lord told him to say. And he wasn't restricted to the job he was officially given. His buddy, one of the other seven, was Philip. And we're about to read about Philip. Philip went down to Samaria and became known. In Acts chapter 19, they call him Philip the Evangelist. But he wasn't called Philip the Evangelist until way after he started evangelizing. See, we flip that around in our generation. Give me the title of evangelist and I'll go and evangelize the world. Whereas in the scripture, it was like, go and evangelize. You do it well, we'll call you an evangelist. <laughs> Obviously, you're an evangelist. The grace of God's on you to do it. You're doing it. Let's call you an evangelist. We wait for a title. Once again, I'm not telling you go take over a church and call yourself a pastor or something. But <laughs> I'm not telling you that. I'm not telling you to go and, you know, just decide what you are. But, you know, I'm a prophet, so I'm going to tell everybody what, you know, what I think that the Lord tells them to do, you know. But what I am saying is this. Often we wait till somebody puts a microphone in our hand before we preach the gospel. We wait till somebody calls us a minister before we lay hands on the sick. You're a believer. You've been given a ministry. This was an ordinary guy who had an ordinary job, but preached the gospel with faith and power. And the world was never the same after this man. What he said to these people is, number one, be careful. Because it's, it's a pattern throughout history that religious people reject who God sends. So you better be, be sure that our hearts are open to the word of God. And don't reject it just because we're, we're uncomfortable with it or we're unfamiliar with it. And the second thing, that God could not be contained in one little place. But our God's bigger than one place. He can't be housed in a, in a building built by hands. You know, as much as we call this the church, this building is not the church. We are the church. The church is not an organization, it's not a building, it's a body, it's an organism, it's a movement. And so the church, we're the church of Jesus Christ. And if this building tore down, if this building burnt down, the church would still be the church. And this church, by itself, is not the church. We're just part of the church. We're part of the great church of Jesus Christ. We're part of the church of Jesus Christ in Lloydminster. And there's other groups meeting in other buildings that are just as much part of our body as these ones sitting here. God cannot be put in a tiny little box and controlled. God will not let you do that. And so let's keep our hearts open and always be willing to be stretched and moved. Let's, when we're pierced to the heart and the Lord's speaking and it, and it feels uncomfortable because it's going to cause you to have to change something, receive it. If it's truly of God, if it's truly his word, I'm not saying you believe every nut that comes along and has a new theory. I'm saying when it's really the word of God and it's confirmed by the spirit of God, let God enlarge your heart. Let him change you. Let him shift you. Let him transform you. Don't be like these people who are stiff-necked and hard-hearted and reject it just because they're, they're going to lose a position or reject it because they've been preaching one way and it's going to turn everything they've said on its head or reject it because they're going to lose their job. Let's be bold. Let's be strong. And get ready, because God's going to use you like he used Stephen. I'm not going to say you're going to die. Because I don't think they're putting people to death on the oil rigs. They're not really putting people to death, stoning people in City Hall of Lloydminster. But don't be afraid. You know, honestly, 
I got to admit, when I was a teenager, I mean, we went to dangerous places, and I went into war zones where they were targeting. I mean, the first time I went overseas, they were targeting that month. They were targeting uh, North Americans. They were they're kidnapping them, and, and some of them lost their heads, literally. And I never really was afraid of that. I, I always felt like if God sent us, a we're okay. You know, and I never had fear of losing my life. I remember going up to the north flying up to a northern reserve and the plane just started going, you know, and, and it just felt like, oh, this thing might just go down. And I didn't feel any fear about that. You know what I did feel fear about? I didn't feel fear. I mean, somebody could come at me with a knife and I didn't feel afraid, but I was afraid people wouldn't like me. I was not afraid of people hurting me, but, but people rejecting or people, people not liking what I had to say or people pushing me to the fringe. I was afraid of not being accepted. Don't be deceived. That's just as big of a fear. This fear of your own fear for your own life. See, in North America, none of us here are being threatened with death right now. Not here. But a lot of us back down because we're afraid of being ostracized. Afraid of being weird. We're afraid of being pushed to the edges. And I want our fear of the Lord. That doesn't mean being scared of God, but honoring him and reverencing him and putting him at first place. May your fear of the Lord be greater than your fear of men. For fear of man is a snare. Galatians 6 says, if I wanted to please men, we could not be bondservants of Jesus Christ. Make up your mind. I'd rather be in Stephen's shoes than the priest's shoes. I'd rather be in his shoes than Saul's shoes at the time. And when someone rejects you, and this is my final point, and I promise we'll pray and close. When someone rejects what you have to say, and in fact are very angry at you. You never know which Saul will someday be a Paul. Yes. You never know which guy wants you dead that a few late years later might be the greatest minister the world's ever seen. So just don't, don't get all torn down because they didn't receive you the first time. Your job is to plant the seed. Let God do with that seed what he wants to do. Amen? Let's stand up. Lord, we thank you for <laughs> your word, your spirit, which is powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to cut deep and, and, and divide between joint and marrow, between soul and spirit to, to truly find out the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. We thank you that your word never returns to you without accomplishing something. We've been given your word. Jesus said in John 17 that just as you gave him your word, that he gave us the same word. And Lord, we thank you that we've been entrusted with such a treasure, even in these earthly, even in these clay vessels that we call our body. You've given us a treasure. Lord, give us boldness that we'd be able to stand up and speak your words of life. No matter the opposition, no matter what it means for our reputation, that we'd, we'd value you more than we value our reputation. Lord, in those moments, we trust you. You'll give us the words to say. We don't have to come up with a great defense. We don't have to come up with an argument. It's not about winning an argument. But in those, that hour, you'll tell us what to say. You'll, you'll put those words in our mouth. You'll show us, you'll lead us, you'll guide us. I thank you for it, Jesus. We trust you, and we thank you, Lord, that this city's got some souls in it that'll someday be like Paul. This city's got people that have yet to come to you. Send us, Lord, to those people. 
that we could plant that seed in them, that they be saved and brought to salvation through those words. In Jesus' name, amen.